before we begin uh, the message this morning, let's have a word of prayer together. So I invite you to bow your heads with me. Father in heaven, we thank you so very, very much for this holy Sabbath day. that We can come apart, come together, worship thee in spirit and in truth. And Father, look at your holy word and understand it, if given the Holy Spirit, which we pray for now. And Father, we thank you so much for Jesus. We look back at that time that he paid the ultimate gift, the ultimate price as a gift uh, to us, uh, that we may be a member of the family and be uh, joined together with all the redeemed and be saved for eternity. And Father, we, we thank you so much for Jesus. We pray for the Holy Spirit to be given to us today. As we study your Holy Word, we look at assurances uh, that are found in your Holy Word. And Father, we lift up before you those who are sick and ill. We think of Kelly, diagnosed with that tumor. What a terrible thing to have, Father. We pray that you be very near to her. Uh, be with Susan's mother. Be with Rollins' mother. Uh, be with those who couldn't be with us today. Those who are sick and ill. Uh, we think of uh, Dusty Rose as well. Um, it's hard to to uh, uh, to to live with the loss of a spouse. We pray that you continue to be with her and lift her up. Father, give me the words to speak today. May they be holy words, uh, prompted from the Holy Spirit, not my own opinions. And may hearts be ready to receive these things as we look back at uh, Christ's life and what He paid for us. I thank you for hearing this prayer, Father, as I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen and amen. Well, friends, I've entitled this particular study, Resurrection Assurances. Resurrection Assurances. This time of year all around the world, Christians remember what is called the Passion Week. Uh, the ministry of Christ for seven days leading up to his death on Friday. That's, they call that Good Friday. And his resurrection at the close of that, that week. Actually, the beginning of the, ne the next week. And though these events have been, uh, shall we say, um, amalgamated with pagan relics and teachings, you know, like Easter, uh, it's still very appropriate for us to remember all that Christ has done for our salvation, uh, especially the closing scenes of that week. And I will submit to you that this is something that is uh, not to be reserved for this time of year only, uh, but that we should contemplate the life of Christ on a daily basis. And, and having said that, let me share this nugget with you as I've, I've done many times before. It's from The Desire of Ages, page 83. And it says, <clears throat> it would be well for us to spend a thoughtful hour each day in contemplation of the life of Christ. We should take it point by point and let the imagination grasp each scene, especially the closing ones. As we thus dwell upon His great sacrifice for us, our confidence in Him will be more constant, our love will be quickened, and we shall be more deeply imbued with His Spirit. So friends, if, you, if you're living a, a spiritual life and it's inconsistent, then I would say that we need to look at Christ more consistently. Does that make sense? And as she says, 
When we do this, our confidence in Him will be more constant, our love will be quickened, we shall be more deeply imbued with His Spirit. If we would be saved at last, we must learn the lesson of penitence and humiliation at the foot of the cross. And uh, those are just very, very good words and very sound counsel for us. And this is exactly what I want to do with you at this time. I want to contemplate one of the greatest hopes we have, if not the greatest, concerning that of Christ's ministry in our behalf. And I want to look again at the resurrection assurances with you today. But before we get to that, I want to just speak for a moment or two about the preceding days that led up to the day of Christ's resurrection. I want to quickly look at what Jesus did the days before he died to kind of set the stage um, for our study. Um, We'll begin a few days before Christ's last week, and uh, we find this in John chapter 12 and verse 1. Christ is coming into his last week here. He knows what his mission is, and it's getting down to that time. In John chapter 12 and verse 1, it says, Then Jesus, six days before the Passover, came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, was, which had been dead, whom he raised from the dead. So as we talk about resurrection assurances here, Lazarus was one that Jesus raised from the dead. And so I think this is a good starting point for our study here as we talk about these things. And here comes Jesus six days before the Passover. And, and I want you to know, when we talk about uh, the Passover, um, <clears throat> I want you to note that the Jews had two calendars. One calendar before the exile in Egypt, and then they had a calendar after exile. <clears throat> Nisan is the first month in the post-exile Jewish calendar. And it corresponds to our March and April here. The word Nisan is very interesting. It, it is Strong's number 5212, if you want to look it up sometime. And it means their flight. But it comes from the Hebrew word, uh, root word Nasa, which means to start. So the name for the month, Nisan, means to start their flight. So the Passover accounted, see, for the uh, Jewish sanctuary services, the, the, that Passover, it, 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 it was the beginning of their flight out of Egypt. The beginning of the sacrificial system calendar, you could say. And that month, Nisan, correlates to the regular calendar that they had, and still had, uh, to the month of Abib, which was the calendar they had before the exile. And so it's very interesting, and just quickly, in Exodus 12, verse 2, God said, This month shall be unto you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year to you. And he was talking about Nisan. And in Exodus 13, 4, it says, This day came ye out in the month Abib. So Nisan was the first month of of the post-exile, but it coincided with their month of Abib. And and I bring that to you because some people can get confused when they start studying into uh, Passover the origins of Passover, the exile, uh, the freedom of uh, their their bondage, etc. So, Friday, the seventh day of Nisan, in the same month of Abib, which is six days before the Passover, Jesus arrived in Bethany, 
uh, at uh, the house of Lazarus at the close of the day, just before the Sabbath. From the book, The Desire of Ages, page 557, notice this little note. Uh, I'm going to share this note concerning, concerning this. She says, The Savior had reached Bethany only six days before the Passover, and according to his custom had sought rest at the home of Lazarus. The crowds of travelers who passed on to the city spread the tidings that he was on his way to Jerusalem and that he would rest over the Sabbath at Bethany. So he comes in to, to the, just before the Sabbath, he gets to Bethany, to the house of Lazarus, so he can rest. And uh, you read, in Desire of Ages, you read, uh, well, in the Gospels, he loved to, um, to go to the house of Lazarus. He truly did gain rest, and he spent a lot of Sabbath days, actually, at the house of Lazarus in Bethany. So, here he comes on, on the Friday, Sabbath evening. Now we go Sabbath evening. This is the eighth day of Nisan and Abib. Uh, you find that Mary anoints Jesus. She brought the perfume in, the alabaster, bo- uh, alabaster box, and, and put the ointment on his perfume on his feet and anointed him. Sunday, uh, and I'm going to go quickly here because I have a lot to share. Uh, the ninth day of Nisan, Abib, this is seven days before the resurrection. This is a week before the resurrection. Jesus has his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And uh, they thought he was uh, going to uh, uh, be sitting on the earthly throne and take over. Uh, see, And that was on a Sunday. Monday, the tenth day of Nisan and Abib, and this is very interesting on the tenth day. There's six days to the resurrection, and several things happened. Jesus cursed the fig tree, you'll remember. He went in and he cleansed the temple. And this was the last time he cleansed the temple. And he was picked by the leaders of Israel. I mean, they didn't have elections or anything like that, but, but they, they, he was picked by the leaders of Israel to be killed. Now, that's very significant, because that's what they did... Uh, during Passover on the 10th day, the lamb, sacrificial lamb, was picked on that day, the 10th day of Nisan. It was picked to be slaughtered and sacrificed. Mark 11 and verse 18 says, And the scribes and chief priests heard it. This is uh, what they, they were talking about, the, tri, um, the, um, excuse me, the cleansing of the temple. They heard it. They sought how they might destroy him. For they feared him because all the people was astonished at his doctrine. And uh, Exodus 12 verse 3 says, Speak ye unto all the congregation of Israel, saying, In the tenth day of this month they shall take to them every man a lamb, according to the house of their fathers, a lamb for a house. And so we see how Jesus is fulfilling these types and symbols. On Tuesday... The 11th day of Nisan and Abib, five days to the resurrection, the fig tree is dead. It's noted in the Gospels there. And then Jesus teaches in the temple the whole day, Tuesday. Wednesday, the 12th day of Nisan and Abib, four days to the resurrection, the priests conspire now how to put Jesus to death. 
Uh, on the tenth day, they chose him. They said, we've got to do something about him. We want to kill him. Now they're getting really serious. Mark 14, verse 1, After two days was the feast of the Passover and of unleavened bread, and the chief priests and the scribes sought how they might take him by craft and put him to death. Corresponding perfectly with the types and symbols here. Thursday, the 13th day of Nisan and Abib, three days to the resurrection, Jesus' last day of teaching in the temple, and he ends it with the woes to the Pharisees. Now we get to Friday, the 14th day of Nisan, two days to the resurrection, and it is the Lord's Passover. This would be our Thursday night. Remember when the day begins? Begins when the sun goes down, right? Jesus washes the disciples' feet. Judas is identified as the betrayer and leaves to make arrangements to give up Jesus. They have the Lord's Supper. Jesus retires to Gethsemane to take on the sins of the world. And then he's arrested. In the morning of Friday, still the 14th day of Nisan, the trials took place. Jesus is beaten. He's scourged, he's ridiculed, he's spit upon. The crucifixion then began at about 9 a.m. The Gospels say the third hour, that's 9 a.m. in the morning. Um, and, and I'll tell you here, you study anything in history about crucifixion. People don't know the pain and the suffering that our Lord Jesus Christ went through for us. They really, you just see the word crucifixion, you know they're nailed to a cross. The Persians were the first to invent crucifixion. The Romans perfected it. And what do I mean by that? The, the Persians would crucify you on a stake. They would put a pole up and they would nail you and they would nail you with your hands over your head. The Romans perfected that because their idea wasn't so much to kill you quickly. They wanted you to live as long as possible and be tortured for that length of time. So they discovered that by bringing your hands down to where they came out to each side that it it prolonged death and still made it that actually made it much more difficult to breathe but it prolonged the death they would also if they seen you you know, almost to die they would put almost they would nail this little oh I can't remember what they called it it was like a little seat that they could nail on that would that would lift you up a little bit to keep you alive and in severe pain it's the worst thing that you could do to a human being to torture them and keep them alive for death. This is why, you know, towards the end they would go through and, and they would break their legs because you had to push up with your legs to breathe. Because when they nailed your feet, they bent your knees down. And with your arms out like this, you were in what your chest would be considered in a, a, a um, position of, I can't think of the word, um, <laughs> I can't think of the word. 
you you is you were in the original position of having uh, expelled your breath, exhaled. Gosh, I had a memory block there. Ex exhale. So you were in that position right off the bat. You had to push up with your feet, which again were nailed. Push up with your feet to get your chest in a position where you could breathe in. Your legs were in such a position because they had them bent that it put all the all the pressure onto your thighs of pushing up, and it was because it was an unnatural position. It didn't take very long to where your thighs would start cramping up, and so just pain after pain, you know, you're pretty soon your legs would become weak, and, and your wrists would break. Your shoulders would dislocate. It just is incredible. Oh yeah, he was he was scourged twice. Uh, most people died after one. Um, it just it just shows our Savior was began crucifixion at nine, and at three he gave up the ghost. Six hours of this is almost like unbelievable to me. Torture for six hours, friends. It tells you what kind of physical shape he was in. Then the mental aspect of it. You you begin to think you're going to die from being, you know, a, a lack of oxygen because you can't continue that in your, your blood. It begins to have more carbon dioxide in it, less oxygen. Your heart starts beating faster because it's saying, hey, your muscles are working, but I'm not getting the oxygen I need, and it's just terrible. And, and and his heart basically blew apart. It got to a point where it blew apart. And like I said, many people they don't know all that. They see the word crucifixion, and it's they they know oh he was nailed to a tree. But these are things we we need to contemplate. What was paid for us? It wasn't you know something that was just a forensic gift to us these things were real you know because of the brutality the act of crucifixion was a sentence given to only the worst offenders of the law and yet here is the one who knew no sin and he was treated as the worst of offenders I need to go on here Jesus died at the very moment the Passover lamb was to be slain at the temple, the ninth hour, or three, like I said, 3 p.m., hour 3 p.m. On the 14th day of Nisan, that's our Friday, just as the scriptures declared it to be. And history records that at that very time of Christ's death, the lamb to be sacrificed there in the temple, escaped from the priest, and the veil separating the holy and most holy places in the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And at that particular time, uh, there is an earthquake, and many graves are opened. And this plays right into our theme and what we're talking about today, resurrection. Saturday, the Sabbath, the 15th day of Nisan, Abib, one day to the resurrection, the Lord, our Savior, rests according to the commandment. He keeps the Sabbath holy by resting on that day. And something else. The first day of the week-long festival 
of unleavened bread begins. So that particular Sabbath that Jesus was resting in the grave, what was considered a double or a high Sabbath. Then the tomb is sealed with the Roman seal, and it's guarded by 100 Roman soldiers. Sunday, the 16th day of Nisan, Nabib, Resurrection Day, the day of first fruits, the offering of the wave sheaf. But it's not a Sabbath day in type or anti-type. And I say this because um, there are some denominations out there, and even the Catholic Church, that tries to say this is a Sabbath day. It was a high Sabbath day, and it is. it was not. It was not. They are confused about that. 1 Corinthians 15.20 says, But now is Christ risen from the dead and become the first fruits of them that slept. So just how does this verse here, 1 Corinthians 15.20, how does it relate? Well, let's read Leviticus 23, verses 10 and 11. And we're talking about here the first fruits, the wave sheaf. Leviticus 23, verses 10 and 11 says, Speak unto the children of Israel and say unto them, When ye be come into the land which I give unto you, and shall reap the harvest thereof, then ye shall bring a sheaf of the first fruits of your harvest unto the priest, and he shall wave the sheaf before the Lord to be accepted for you on the morrow after the Sabbath. The priest shall wave it. Did you catch that, friends? On the morrow after after the Sabbath. Sunday here, Jesus was resurrected. It was the day after the Sabbath. Perfectly in line with what uh, the, the types and shadows were that we read about here in Leviticus. Let's go back to the book of Desire of Ages. This time page 670, let's see, excuse me, 785, I think it is. Yeah. 785. Christ arose from the dead as the first fruits of those that slept. Remember I mentioned earlier, when Jesus died at 3 o'clock that afternoon, there was a great earthquake and there were a lot of graves that were opened. Okay? Just remember that. She says, Christ arose from the dead as the first fruits of those that slept. He was the anti-type of the wave sheaf. And his resurrection took place on the very day when the wave sheaf was to be presented before the Lord. For more than a thousand years, this symbolic ceremony had been performed. From the harvest fields, the first heads of ripened grain were gathered. And when the people went up to Jerusalem to the Passover, the sheaf of first fruits was waved as a thank offering before the Lord. Not until this was presented could the sickle be put to the grain, and it be gathered into sheaves. The sheaf dedicated to God represented the harvest. So Christ, the first fruits, represented the great spiritual harvest to be gathered for the kingdom of God. His resurrection is the type and pledge of the resurrection of all the righteous dead. And when Jesus was resurrected... Guess what? Remember all those graves that were opened on that earthquake? Those people were resurrected with him. And so the resurrection resurrection takes place at some time after the beginning of the day. Remember, the day begins at sunset, right? 
so, you know, it takes place sometime after the beginning of the day, but before the morning sunrise Sunday morning. And just exactly when, after sunset, the resurrection took place. I mean, it's uncertain. But that it happened on what we call today Sunday is really quite clear. So that is what is referred to, what I've just kind of went through for <laughs> half an hour, <laughs> is, uh, I want to go a little quicker, but, you know, that's, that's what's referred to as Passion Week in a nutshell. Now there's a saying that, and maybe you've heard of it, that a man convinced against his will is of the same opinion still. Have you ever heard that before? That a man convinced against his will is of the same opinion still. means you haven't changed his opinion. You're just forcing him to do something. There are many people who do not believe that there will ever be a resurrection, no matter what the Bible evidence says. And the Bible evidence is overwhelming. Let's go to 1 Corinthians 15. We'll begin reading at verse 13. And this is how important Christ's resurrection was to us. Paul lays it out, the importance of it. He says, Now if Christ be preached that he rose from the dead, how say some among you that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there be no resurrection of the dead, then is Christ not risen? And if Christ be not risen, then our preaching vain, and your faith is also vain. Yea, and we are found false witnesses of God. Because we have testified of God that He raised up Christ, whom He raised not up, if so be that the dead rise not. For if the dead rise not, then is not Christ raised. And if Christ be not raised, your faith is vain, and ye are yet in your sins. Then they also which are fallen asleep in Christ are perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. But now is Christ risen from the dead and become the first fruits of them that slept. For since by man came death, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. But every man in his own order, Christ the first fruits, afterward they that are Christ at his coming. Then cometh the end, when he shall have delivered up the kingdom to God, even the Father, when he shall have put down all rule and all authority and power. And so here, Paul cites evidence here that because Christ has risen, it proves the fact that God can raise people from the dead, and there will be a resurrection of Christ's followers when he returns. Christ being raised from the dead is one of the most Friends, it's one of the most indisputable facts in history. If you want to look at it as a court case. (laughs) Uh, Because there's many witnesses that attest to it. About 20 to 25 years after the resurrection, Paul said in that same chapter, 1 Corinthians 15, uh, in verses 5 to 7, he talked about the witnesses. He said that he was seen of Cephas, then of the twelve. After that, he was seen of above five hundred brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain unto this present, but some are fallen asleep. After that, he was seen of James, then of all the apostles. And last of all, he was seen of me also, as one born out of due time. 
And remember those graves that were opened when the earthquake happened there and Christ died? And then they were resurrected when Christ was resurrected? Those people also went throughout testifying of the resurrection, that Christ was resurrected. They, they were dead. So, there are a lot of witnesses. And like I said, to establish what is true or false in the courtroom, witnesses are called to testify, aren't they? And in this instance, there were over 500 witnesses, some of whom were still alive and could verify that they had visited with Jesus after he had risen from the dead. And were you aware that scriptures record that he appeared to people ten times after his resurrection? He appeared to Peter. That's Cephas. Paul, we just read that. He appeared to Mary Magdalene. Uh, That's in Mark 16. He appeared to two disciples as they were walking to Emmaus. Remember that? Luke 24. He appeared to all eleven of the apostles the same day. That's in John 20, Luke 24. He appeared to more than 500 at one time. As Paul says there, he appeared to James. He appeared to the eleven apostles again a week later. John chapter 20. He appeared to seven of the apostles while they were fishing. That's John 21. His disciples saw him ascend into heaven. That's Acts chapter 1. And he appeared to Paul on the road to Damascus. 1 Corinthians 15. Paul mentions that. Oh, but Pastor Joel... They were all followers of Jesus, and they could have made it all up. Really? Would they really have had to lie about such a thing? Would they live a life of such persecution and then be killed based upon such a lie? That'd be even harder to believe than the resurrection, in my opinion. But besides the eyewitnesses, consider these points. Consider these evidences. Here's evidence. Neither the Jews nor the Romans could produce the body of Christ. Don't you think that they would have produced it and paraded it around as being dead? The Jews claimed that he was never raised from the dead. But dead people just don't walk away. (laughs) Right? So what happened to the body of Jesus? Nobody could produce a body except Christ himself, and he did that according to these witnesses. He was resurrected. Here's another one. At the time of his burial, the tomb was sealed by a Roman seal. Anyone who broke that Roman seal would be in defiance of the Roman government. They'd be subject to prosecution, and at the very least, they'd be put in prison. But there's no record of any prosecution of anyone breaking the Roman seal. Jesus' disciples were accused, of course, of stealing his body, but there was never a prosecution. There's no record ever of any prosecution in all the Bible or anywhere else because the evidence, and there wouldn't have been, if you think about it, the evidence would show that there wasn't a body to be found and the Jews wanted the whole story to just go away. (laughs) Another thing. 100 Roman soldiers who were commissioned to guard the tomb, they were commissioned, did not all fall asleep at the same time and sleep so soundly that the disciples could come and roll the stone away and steal the body. You know, the penalty for a soldier to sleep while he's on guard duty was death. But it's recorded that all 100 soldiers were so sound asleep that they didn't wake while the stone was being rolled away while the disciples stole the body of Christ. Friends, that justifies all 
common sense reasoning. Another thing, and I kind of alluded to this before, before the crucifixion, when Jesus was arrested, the disciples were all so afraid that they ran away and hid, and later they hid in a locked upper room for fear of the Jews, remember? Were they suddenly not afraid anymore to such a degree as to go and steal the body of Jesus? Which was being guarded by a hundred soldiers? Now, something happened, didn't it? In Acts chapter 5, verse 29 and on, it says, Then Peter and the other apostles answered and said, We ought to obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom ye slew and hanged on a tree. Him hath God exalted with his right hand to be a prince and a savior, for to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are his witnesses of these things, and so is also the Holy Ghost, whom God hath given to them that obey him. What was the reason the cowardice of the disciples was transformed into an unspeakable boldness? The change in the apostles is one of the strongest evidences for the resurrection. Before the resurrection, they were a group of 11 men who were scared to death and hiding out. But the power of the resurrection, it empowered them. When brought into courts, they boldly spoke truth, saying, You are the ones who killed the Lord, but now He's at the right hand of the Father in heaven. Here's another thing. By 100 AD, it's estimated that between 5 and 10% of the people in the Roman Empire were Christians, even though paganism attempted over and over again to destroy Christianity. How could that be? Why does Christianity, why, why did it grow? <coughs> Excuse me. Why couldn't Christianity be extinguished? Well, friends, it was due to the evidence of the resurrection of Christ. Because Christ had been raised, Christians had the resurrection assurance that they also would be raised at His second coming if they died beforehand. And, and friends, there are many Bible facts about the resurrection. Many of them. We'll look at some here. Isaiah, he speaks about it. Isaiah 26 verse 19 says, Thy dead men shall live. Together with my dead body shall they arise. Awake and sing, ye that dwell in the dust, for thy dew is as the dew of herbs, and the earth shall cast out the dead. The people who dwell in dust are those who are in the graves, is what Isaiah is saying. And they'll awake and they'll sing when Jesus, the Messiah, returns. The resurrection is one of the prominent doctrines in the Bible. And it's there for a reason. It's assurance for us. The first two books of the Bible that were written were the book of Genesis and the book of Job. And it's clear in the book of Job that the, the followers, these ancient followers of the true God, understood the resurrection. Job chapter 19, verses 25 and 26. For I know that my Redeemer liveth, and that he shall stand at the latter day upon the earth. And though after my skin worms destroy this body, yet in my flesh shall I see God. So Job understood that he would see God and also that he'd have a new body. 
David had the same hope. In Psalm 17, verse 15, he wrote, As for me, I will behold thy face in righteousness. I shall be satisfied when I awake with thy likeness. In the book of Ezekiel, the resurrection is described in symbolic language. Ezekiel 37 Verse 11, Then he said unto me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say, our bones are dried and our hope is lost. We are cut off for our parts. Therefore prophesy and say unto them, Thus saith the Lord God, Behold, O my people, I will open your graves and cause you to come up out of your graves and bring you into the land of Israel. And ye shall know that I am the Lord when I have opened your graves, O my people, and brought you up out of your graves." and shall put my spirit in you, and ye shall live, and I shall place you in your own land. Then shall ye know that I, the Lord, have spoken it, and performed it, saith the Lord. The New Testament, there's all kinds of texts about this, since Christ had already been risen. 2 Corinthians 4.14 Knowing that he which raised up the Lord Jesus shall raise up us also by Jesus, and shall present us with you. John 5, verses 28 and 29. Marvel not at this, for the hour is coming in the which all that are in the grave shall hear his voice and shall come forth. They that have done good unto the resurrection of life and they that have done evil unto the resurrection of damnation. So they'll come out of their graves here, see? They'll be resurrected. But what about the people who are not buried in graves? You know, I've had that asked to me from time to time. Some people have died and been buried in the sea. You know, right? Will they be resurrected? Revelation 20 verse 13 says, And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them, and they were judged every man according to their words. So friends, there's not a place that will not give up the dead on that day when they're called to come forth from Christ. That means they'll be made alive again. Philippians 3 verse 8, Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dung, that I may win Christ, and be found in Him, not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith, that I may know Him, and the power of His resurrection. Paul talks about the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being made conformable unto his death, if by any means I might attain unto the resurrection of the dead. There's power to it. It changes lives. That hope, see? Luke 14, verse 13, But when thou makest a feast, call the poor, the maimed, the lame, the blind, and thou shalt be blessed, for they cannot recompense thee, For thou shalt be recompensed at the resurrection of the just. Jesus says there is an exact record here being kept of your life. And those believers who have dedicated their lives to serving others, especially helping others who are unfortunate and in in distressing um, circumstances, they'll be paid back at the resurrection of the just. And by and by, there's going to be a big payment for the just. (laughs) Right? I mean, I think about it. There are many Christians that have lost children 
Uh, but they believe in the resurrection and look forward to the hope they have in raising their children in a perfect environment when they get to heaven. Jeremiah 31, verse 15, says this, Thus saith the Lord, A voice was heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel, weeping for her children, refused to be comforted for her children because they were not. Thus saith the Lord, Refrain thy voice from weeping and thine eyes from tears, for thy work shall be rewarded, saith the Lord, and they shall come again from the land of the enemy. And there is hope in thine end, saith the Lord, that thy children shall come again to their own border. This event will be fulfilled when Jesus comes back. The apostles constantly wrote about the second coming of Christ. They knew that when Jesus returns, the dead will be raised and reunited with their loved ones. Remember John 14? Before the ascension, Jesus promised His disciples that in my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself that where I am, there ye may be also. The resurrection is a wonderful subject, friends. It it thrills us to think about it and, and it gives us hope. Because we all have had friends and and loved ones who have died. However, Jesus made it very clear. There's another side of the coin, isn't there? And we need to remember that not everybody who is raised will be raised to eternal life. Remember what we read in John 5, just a few moments ago? Marvel not at this, for the hour is coming in which all that are in the grave shall hear His voice. And shall come forth they that have done good unto the resurrection of life. And it didn't stop there. He says, and they that have done evil unto the resurrection of damnation. The Bible is very clear in both the Old and New Testaments that not everybody raised is going to be raised to eternal life. The Jews believed this. While on trial and speaking about the Jews, Paul said in Acts 24.15, and have hope toward God which they themselves also allow that there shall be a resurrection of the dead both of the just and unjust. The Jews believe that. Daniel 12 verse 2, And many of them that sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Revelation 20, in verse 6, it points out specifically that there will be two resurrections and they'll be a thousand years apart. It says, Blessed and holy is he that hath part in the first resurrection, on such the second death hath no power. But they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. The first resurrection is a resurrection unto eternal life. Never having to suffer the second death. And those who are a part of that resurrection are called blessed and holy. Did you catch that? Verse 5 says, you back up, it says, But the rest of the dead lived not again until the thousand years were finished. At the end of the thousand years, a second resurrection will take place. 
Let's look at verses 7 and 8. Revelation 20, verses 7 and 8. When the thousand years are expired, Satan shall be loosed out of his prison and shall go out to deceive the nations which are in the four quarters of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle, the number of whom is as the sand of the sea. The number of these people are as the sand of the sea. Those who reject the gift of Christ number the sand of the sea. It's incredible. Sad. Revelation 20, verse 12. And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God, and the books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And and the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them. And they were judged every man according to their works. And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Not a happy ending. The most important question of all, when we learn of these things, is how to have assurance of being part of the first resurrection. And as I said before, the person who has part of the first resurrection is described by two words, right? Blessed and holy. And a powerful text on that very same subject is Hebrews 12 and verse 14. It says, Follow peace with all men and holiness without which no man shall see the Lord. That's a very incredible statement. Those who are raised in the first resurrection must be holy persons as only they will see the Lord. That's what it says there. So the next question is, if I have to be holy to see the Lord at the first resurrection, what does it mean to be holy? Well, let's consider some things here. Consider this. Remember in John 14, Jesus said, If you've seen me, you have seen the Father. Now, he wasn't saying that they were the same person, but he was talking about their character traits, wasn't he? Right? So he says, if you have seen me, you've seen the Father. Father. In Hebrews 7.26, it says of Jesus, For such a high priest became us, who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and made higher than the heavens. And so here Jesus is described as holy. Right? He's holy, harmless, undefiled. So if you study the life of Jesus, you'll find the meaning of holiness. Now Romans 7 and verse 12 says, Wherefore the law is holy, and the commandment holy, and just, and good. You see where I'm going with this? (laughs) In context here, Romans 7, Paul first specifically refers to the Ten Commandments as being holy. Then, quoting the Tenth Commandment, he says the commandment is holy. That's the context. And so this really isn't complicated. A person's life will be in harmony. A holy person's life. They're going to be in harmony with the Ten Commandments as the life of Jesus was in harmony with the Ten Commandments. The thoughts, the feelings, words, actions of a holy person will be in harmony with the Ten Commandments because we just read, the law is holy. They will behave as Jesus 
whose character is a reflection of the Ten Commandments and the expressed image of the Father in heaven. Now, an unholy person is one whose life is not in harmony with the Ten Commandments, and they will behave like their father. And who is their father? The devil. Jesus said so in John eight forty four. Ye of our ye are of your father, the devil, and the lusts of your father ye will do. He was a murderer from the beginning, and abode not in the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he speaketh a lie, he speaketh of his own, for he is a liar and the father of it. How can you have assurance that you'll be in the first resurrection if you should die before Jesus comes? Well, Second Peter 3 and verse 14 says this. Notice what Peter says. He says, Wherefore, beloved, seeing that ye look for such things, be diligent that ye may be found of him in peace without spot and blameless. Without spot is an analogy or, or a, a description using the symbolism of clothing, right? When clothes become soiled, they're washed to remove the spots and then they're ironed to remove the wrinkles. So the Bible uses this analogy, right? In speaking about the church, and the church is made up of what? God's people, right? That's who the church is. Wherever Christ is, there is His church. And, and uh, people who have accepted Christ as Lord and Savior, they are members of the body. They're the church. Paul says in Ephesians 5.27, he says that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. Now he's talking about the people of God, isn't he? The church that Christ presents to His Father is without spot or wrinkle. It has been made clean. It has been pressed. It is God's purpose to remove every spot, every wrinkle. So we need to pray that God will send His Holy Spirit to reveal the spots and wrinkles to us in our life and our character and give us power to overcome these things. And just the other day, I was, I was reading devotions, and I came across the explanation on how that happens. And of course, I'm going to get into to much greater detail of what sin is and temptation and these things in a coming series of sermons about sin and temptation and such. But let me share this with you. It's from the book Maranatha, page 91. Are you interested in it? Do you want to know, beloved? I want to know. I want to know. How does this happen? It says, But upon him who looks to Jesus as the author and finisher of his faith, Satan's temptations have no power. He cannot cause to sin the one who will accept by faith the virtues of him who was tempted in all points as we are, yet without sin. The expulsion of sin is the act of the soul itself. Here we go. True, we have no power to free ourselves from Satan's control. But when we desire to be set free from sin, 
Beloved, do you desire to be set free from sin? And in our great need, we cry out for a power out of our out of and above ourselves. The powers of the soul are imbued with the divine energy of the Holy Spirit, and they obey the dictates of the will in fulfilling the will of God. You want to know how to become holy? Here's an explanation on how that process happens. It's wonderful. What we need to do is cry out for the power so that we may be imbued with the divine energy of the Holy Spirit. Philippians 1 verse 6 says, Being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. Remember we read before, we gain confidence. We look to Christ, we cry out for help, the Holy Spirit comes in, gives us this divine energy. It's a supernatural thing, friends, to change a person's heart. We can't do it. Only God can do that. And so what does He do? He puts within us an enmity against sin, a hatred for sin. And how does He do that? We look at Jesus, we fall in love with Jesus, and because of our love for Him, we would not want to be the ones to nail Him to that wicked cross. And once God starts that work in us, Paul says we can be confident that He's going to finish it. And it's the Lord who's going to finish the work that He started. Trust Him. Believe Him. You can have faith in Him who was resurrected. The only way that was even possible was if he overcame every tendency and temptation to sin, and he has promised to share that victory of life and over death with you if you believe, if you commit yourself to him. It's interesting, James says in James 1, verse 2, he says, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations. What? Count it joy? Really? He goes on, he says, knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience. But let patience have her perfect work, that she may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. Friends, God will have a people who will be perfect and entire when Jesus comes. They'll be holy, with no spots, no wrinkles, no blemishes. To get to that point, there's going to be many and various temptations to overcome. But James says, count it all joy, because God's working it out. In your life. And I'll tell you friends, time's running out. Time's running out for us. And unlike Enoch, God doesn't have 300 years to accomplish His work for us. We don't live that long. He has to speed up the process. And a holy character is perfected through the process of trials and temptations. If you want to be perfect, if you want to be ready for Jesus to come, here's something here. Consider this. The spirit of prophecy needs to be confirmed in your life. Did you know that? Look at what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1. Again, reading verse 5. He says that in everything ye are enriched by Him, in all utterance and in all knowledge, 
even as the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you. What is the testimony of Jesus Christ? Well, according to Revelation 19.10, it is the spirit of prophecy, isn't it? He says, even as the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you, so that you come behind in no gift. He's talking about gifts of the Spirit. Isn't prophecy a gift of the Spirit? Waiting for the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall also confirm you unto the end, that ye may be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, by whom ye were called unto the fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Now the Greek word for confirm there is babayo, and it means to be established. The people who are going to be blameless, when Jesus returns, the ones that don't see death, even the ones after the, the three angels' messages were given, they will have been established in the spirit of prophecy. God will have a perfect people that are confirmed in the testimony of Jesus, and according to Revelation 19.10, that's the spirit of prophecy. Chew on that for a little while. 2 Timothy 3, verses 16 and 17 says, All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for what? For doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. For what reason? That the man of God may be what? Perfect. Thoroughly furnished unto all good works. Wouldn't you say that person would be holy? And this is the key, really, to Protestant thinking and one of the main texts in the New Testament on on which we we, we base our beliefs, friends. It would be wise if we really study it carefully. I'm moving along here, but study it out. You'll get its full impact. And we want to be sure, we want to be sure we acknowledge the truth gently and tactfully, um, friends. It's not unkind to acknowledge the truth. As Elder uh, C.D. Brooks would say, God doesn't give the truth to embarrass you. He gives it because He loves you. For hundreds of years, the Roman Catholic Church has claimed that to reach spiritual perfection, the Scriptures aren't enough. They have claimed that in addition to the Scriptures, you have oral traditions, you have the sacraments of the Church, and various religious exercises are needed in order to have spiritual perfection. And the most famous group within the Catholic Church that has perfected spiritual exercises, quo, is the Jesuit order. They are actually called spiritual exercises. That's what they call them. We see it invading Adventism. And after taking them, a person is supposed to be on a higher spiritual level than anybody else in the world. But I'll tell you, friends, some of the people who have taken these spiritual exercises have committed the most violent and awful crimes of anybody who's ever lived. And as Protestants, we don't believe that Catholic teaching. And we don't believe that a minister or a church organization or any Christian organization or group can add something to the Bible in order to become spiritually perfect. Paul draws attention to what is inspired of God. He says it's the Scriptures. The purpose of the Scriptures is that the man of God may be what? Perfect. 
And that is the basis of all Protestant teaching. You can't add to the Bible as if God failed to share all that was needed for us to become a holy people, a nation of priests. Who do we think we are to declare such a blasphemous thing? The wise man said in Ecclesiastes 3 and verse 14, he says, I know that whatsoever God doeth it shall be forever. Nothing can be put to it, nor anything taken from it. And God doeth it that men should fear before Him. In other words, nothing can be added to it, nor can anything be taken from it. The Word of God. When God has given us His book, the book is complete. And we should be fearful to try and add or take away from what God has given There are some people who believe that it is impossible to become holy, that it's impossible to overcome, and that you're going to go through your whole life sinning. But as long as you just confess your sins every day, you'll be saved. Friends, this deadly heresy is very prevalent in the Advent movement. Now, it's true that confessed sins will be forgiven, but friends, you can't go through life living like the devil, just confessing your sins and expect to be in the first resurrection. The Bible, it doesn't teach that. I have had Adventist pastors who should know better tell me it is impossible to overcome sin here and that Jesus will change our characters into holy ones at the second coming. They better study this out and get it right before then. Or they're, going, they're not going to be a member of the righteous to meet Jesus in peace. Remember, Bible said we must be holy to meet Jesus when He returns. Titus chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us that, denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously and godly in this present world. Not wait till Jesus returns. And friends, to be in the first resurrection, we must live like this in this present world now. And we read the key to it before. We pray for the Holy Spirit to give us that power. And in closing, I want to, I want to read Desire of Ages, page 787. says, at the Savior's resurrection, a few graves were opened, but at His second coming, all the precious dead shall hear His voice and shall come forth to glorious, immortal life. The same power that raised Christ from the dead will raise His church and glorify it with Him above all principalities, above all powers, above every name that is named, not only in this world, but also in the world to come. The resurrection, friends, is the most exciting subject in the world if you're ready. And if you want to be ready, Titus said there, Paul said there to Titus, said you need to live soberly, righteously, and godly now. You need to be preparing. You need to be praying. The Bible says that we need to pray for each other so we will be healed and so that we will be ready for Jesus when He comes. Let's do that now. Let's pray together to be ready when Jesus comes. 
Father in heaven, we thank you so very, very much for the assurances we find in your word and the promises that you've given and how we can become a holy people. We pray for the Holy Spirit now. We cry out to you, Lord, to forgive us our sins. Jesus shed his blood on that cross so that we may have forgiveness. He was resurrected, showing he defeated sin and the grave and death. And He promises that gift to us. And we cry out for that gift. A free gift. We cannot earn salvation. Jesus has provided it for us if we would just receive it. The Father, please give us that gift now. Give us the strength we need to, to and the Holy Spirit to detect those things in our life and character that need changed. And give us that spiritual energy to make that change. We thank you so much, Father, for the most wonderful gift in Christ and for the gift of the the help of the heavenly angels. And we pray this in Jesus' name, for He's worthy. Amen.